Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Mizzou Sports Podcast, presented by the Columbia Daily Tribune. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Mizzou Sports Podcast. My name is Eric Blum, breaking down Mizzou sports with you every week here on the show. Joining me, as always, is the Tribune sports editor, Chris Kwasinski. How are you doing, Chris? I'm feeling great. How are you? I'm doing okay. We are coming to you on Thursday the 14th, two days off Missouri's game against Texas A&M. They did beat North Texas last Saturday, 48-35. That is a big total for the mean green actually to score but mizzou's offense did play well we did see some improvements from the defensive line after that debacle that was tennessee where do you want to start this week chris do you want to start with how well the offense looked in the first half because it, it was basically semo 2.0 a, a little bit of that i think i think north texas scored one touchdown in in the first half and i don't remember off the top of my head exactly how they scored but essentially everything that went wrong against tennessee got fixed pretty quickly connor baselak looked Calm and composed under center and was back to being his great pocket passer self. Tyler Beatty is showing to be an incredible running back for them. I mean, this is his fourth year in Columbia, first year truly starting, and is he's balling out. He really is. I mean, there's just so many missed tackles. There are so many long runs. I mean, this is a guy, enjoy him while you have him here now. I am almost certain he is going to the NFL. He's not going to take an extra year, not going to do that COVID eligibility thing. This is a guy you're going to see, see playing on Sundays this time next year. Um, the wide receivers still played well. The tight ends played well. The offensive line was back to their normal selves after Connor Bazelak had almost no time to pass the ball against Tennessee. So overall, just a way better performance. The, the defense is a little harder to talk about because did they get a passing grade? Overall, yes, but com- and, but it's an A compared to their past selves. Like We, we saw some improvements, and you got to keep in mind that they were starting almost from ground zero here in terms of expectations. Like how they did against Tennessee was one of the worst defensive performances in like in, in recent Mizzou memory. Coming off of that and only allowing thirty five points is not that bad. Yeah, but especially when you, when you cut into two halves, I, I, and you you always have to look back and answer. You know, who do they play in the second half? Who got the reps? Because obviously against Semo, we saw the the starters leave, then the second stream, then the third string, and I think they went four deep, right? Against Simo, I can't remember how far how far deep they went into the depth chart, but they played a lot of people. They played yeah. a lot of players, and we kind of I kind of expected a little bit of that to happen. You know, them just kind of getting, taking a little bit of hit when it comes to that FCS opponent trying to play well. You know, coming in and they're going to have a little upstart, score some points. Of course, it didn't affect the outcome, but against North Texas, you like how deep did they go? Because you can kind of see like after the first after the third quarter, they could have cut it to ten. But they didn't. Uh, Mackie got the pick six, and at that point, you're like, all right, th- this game's over. Yeah, I mean, that, North Texas made that game a lot closer. Mizzou is now 0-6 against the spread this mm-hmm. year, which is something odd. But, you know, you, you have to look and see that 
Missouri didn't dive too deep into its bench at the beginning of that second half. They were still playing mostly ones, and North Texas started scoring on them. So is it just a, is it a conditioning thing? Is it North Texas made the right halftime adjustments? I mean, let's be honest. This North Texas team isn't that great on offense, and they seemingly figured Missouri out in the third quarter. It was too late to pretty much win the game at that point, but going from North Texas to Texas A&M, who just knocked off the, the former number one team in the country, this is such a tremendous step up for Missouri. And we talk about that because next week is the bye week for Missouri. And then you have Vanderbilt, I guess, technically in two weeks from now. And then you have Georgia in three weeks. And so this is such a critical game for Missouri because you see how the rest of the season plays out. And unless you want a game at Arkansas on Black Friday to decide whether you're bowl eligible or not, I pretty much think that the most conventional bowl route went out the window with the Tennessee loss. You have to steal a game from a ranked team. I really do think the most likely game the Missouri can win is Saturday. If they lose to AM, which is probably the predicted outcome, probably the expected outcome, Missouri has such tough, even more tough sledding to get back to a bowl, which means you have to beat both of the teams that, you know, you're expected to beat in South Carolina and Vanderbilt. And I think that that will still probably happen. I think Missouri's offense is too good to just run by both of those teams. We could talk about that at a later time. But then you leave it to Florida, who is really good. I mean, ten, uh, excuse me, Kentucky made them look pretty bad, but Florida's still a really good team. And then an Arkansas team where Sam Pittman has admitted that they're kind of looking to take Missouri's head off. They've lost this game five straight years in a row. Sam Pittman really wanted that game last year. Didn't happen thanks to th- thanks to Harrison Mevis, but that's in Fayetteville for the first time since 2017. Like, I I don't. It, and we might need to start talking about this early, but Missouri fans are absolutely gonna not expect how badly Arkansas's fans have that game scheduled. Like coming into the year, priority number one was probably beat Missouri. Not even like what they're doing and how they're exceeding expectations. It was win that game on Black Friday. Yeah, it, it's one of those double, triple, quadruple circle kind of games. And I think you kind of hit, uh, hit the nail on the head a little bit when it comes to when you look at Florida. Florida's a good team. And and it says a lot about Kentucky, especially going back to that game. I know we talked about that a lot, especially the second game of the season, the night game. Mizzou looked pretty good. And especially in a game where if you're thinking about down the road, how are they going to perform against Florida? How are they going to perform against Arkansas? Using that, we I, I thought we were going to use that Kentucky game as a barometer. Like, okay, this is where we're at. But it turns out Tennessee kind of changed things a little bit, especially when it comes to this, that the the identity. Where are we right now? Are we good? Are we bad? Are we really bad? But that that Arkansas game, I think, is going to be wild, especially now as we start to see teams like Georgia establish themselves. Like, yeah, they're going to be in the college football playoff. The, shutting them out. I mean, I didn't think they were going to shut them out. Neither did I. But at the end of the day, like that's still that's still a it's still an idea that the rest of the the division, the Missouri, Arkansas, and everyone else, it's up for grabs. Is it this week or next week that the CFP rankings start? Or oh. start next week or two weeks is more so what I meant because it's always before the end of October. Yeah, but I can't I think remember. it's I think they do six rankings, which would mean it is next week or the week after. I cannot remember off the top of my head if you want to look it up on your phone while I babble here for the next couple of minutes. But yes, you know, I, I think you have to look at just in terms of now the Texas A and M game. You know, if Missouri's defense is having trouble, and they, Missouri has not put together a complete sixty-minute performance in any game yet. Obviously, you want to just kind of discount the second half against CMO, and Missouri obviously ran them off the field in the first half. Fine. You look at 
kind of the same thing with North Texas, but there are warning signs kind of there with both of those games. The other four games Missouri has played, we couldn't properly assess because of Central Michigan. We didn't really know what to expect. Missouri still only beat a pretty okay Central Michigan team by 10 points. And then LSU, who's had so many troubles over the past couple weeks, beat the brakes off of them. Then you have the three losses of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Boston College. Boston, and then, and I said it last week how quickly Missouri went from a team that was two plays away from being 4-0 to a week two and three team almost at the snap of your fingers. Now looking back a little more harshly on the Kentucky game and a little more harshly on the Boston College game, you have to kind of think about, okay, if Missouri's just fortune happened that way, how did it happen that way? It, you know, And I know people took some ownership after that Kentucky loss, but if your offense gets out of the breaks early, if your defense can stop Chris Rodriguez and then going to the Boston College game, because Boston College has proven to be a really good team, and winning on, in that environment was always going to be really tough, but... Missouri had a chance at the end there. Missouri had every chance in the world to win that game. And those are the types of games when you're looking to go from good to great, when we were talking before the season started about closing the gap that you needed to have. And so it's just such a much more different conversation we're having now to where Missouri is looking to strongly finish in fifth in the SEC East. That's not good. No, but it all comes back to the idea that uh, this is an opportunity they have this weekend to against a Texas A&M team that's just so it's been so up and down not not this to the same uh I guess almost to the reverse of Mizzou I mean two bad losses but then one really great one um and, and with Mizzou it's always it's you know two SEC losses and then a really terrible loss to Tennessee but uh, it, it when you look at where Texas A&M is right now I mean that's it's an interesting case study yeah it really it really is and I mean at Texas A&M last year uh, probably should have made the playoff. Let's let, let's be real. I mean, it was Alabama, it was uh, Ohio State, Clemson, and Oklahoma. Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Thank you. And with with Notre Dame proved against uh, Clemson in that way, both in the ACC title game and then going and facing Alabama in the national semifinal, it was like, okay, who's the more complete team? It was pro- probably A and M. Always, you just had to kind of look and see. And I know you're a Notre Dame fan. I thought they got it wrong back then. I thought it actually probably may, might, might have been Cincinnati, even though they lost to Georgia. But Notre Dame got the experience and just over – and you can debate this all you want. But <laughs> I, I really did think that Texas a had proven that they probably had a more legitimate claim to the top four than Notre Dame did um, for obvious reasons. But we don't have to hash that out. But going to – Back to this year and this A&M team, it was kind of expected this is the year they exercise those demons. This is the year they can beat Alabama, and then they fall on their face against Arkansas. They doubled down on that by losing to Mississippi State, who's expected to be last in that division this year in the SC West. Now, and then they kind of rise back up all of the sudden with the win over Alabama. Which A&M team do we get? Do we get one in the middle? It's honestly one of the most interesting teams in the country of national championship contender to the team falling most behind expectations to the first team to beat Alabama since before COVID started. It's just such a roller coaster with them. It, it, it's it's so weird. And to go back and answer that question you had before, November 2nd is when the first college football uh, playoff rankings drop. Okay. Um, so so we'll, we'll find out in a couple weeks. But um, the, at the end of the day, it, it's I think you hit it right there. What Whatever team we get this Saturday at Texas A&M, whatever team that we see come to fro, it's gonna. We'll we'll see it right away. You know, we'll see Texas A&M if they're still hungover from that loss or the, from the win over Alabama. That they're if they're still thinking about it. If they're still living in that that time, 
we'll, we'll find out. But unless they want to keep proving it that, hey, like we're we're here, we don't have a hangover, we just fell on our face a little bit, but we're, we're back. Maybe it does, but and we'll find out pretty early. But that if they're any at all, you know, faltering, if they're tripping over themselves and that kind of stuff, that provides this uh, is probably the best chance to finally get that that win that's going to put you in bowl eligibility for Mizzou. Yeah, and I agree with you. So you disagree with me that A and M uh, was better than Notre Dame last year? Or you disagree with me? Oh, absolutely disagree with you. Okay, I just want, I wanted to be wanted to be clear on that. that seeing you cringe off, kind uh, of like I can't believe he's dissing my favorite team. That, that just so publicly. No, no, I, I feel very strongly about that, but we don't have to talk about that. All right. Well, we did talk. Well, we did talk to uh, Travis Brown of the Eagle from College Station, Brian, that area. He covers A and M athletics for them, and I talked to him earlier this week about just the matchup and everything going on. So, without further ado, here's my conversation from earlier this week with Travis Brown. Joining the Mizzou Sports Podcast this time is Travis Brown from the Eagle. He covers Texas A and M athletics for them. How you doing, Travis? Hey, uh, doing well. Can't complain. Uh, Big uh, big weekend college season this week. Yeah, I guess we'll start with the weekend it was in College Station. I mean, going into that Alabama game, what was kind of the feeling? And I know Jimbo Fisher had made that promise over the summer about beating Alabama and all that. And now how are things, you know, I guess 72 hours after the upset? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all good vibes here. Jimbo Fisher is usually pretty, uh, pretty friendly with us on Mondays when he, he talks to the media, but he was extra jovial uh, uh, yesterday um, when it went after that win. Uh, I think uh, there, there is a little bit of a, a weight lifted off the shoulders when, you know, you're a coach that's basically hired to come in here and beat Alabama, and, and, and you did it. Um, but that being said, it's not quite the season that everyone expected uh, with those uh, kind of unexpected losses to Arkansas and uh, Mississippi State still kind of hanging over their heads. So it's going to be interesting to see what this season turns out to be with the kind of dichotomy of those two, uh, those, those the, the three games and, and the differences those made. Talk to me more about the quarterback. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Zach Calzada. Just, I know he that wasn't is- the starter. It, it was, it was, I think it was Haynes King coming into the year. He goes down, I believe, in the Colorado game and then – just, he doesn't look good from the start, but I guess he kind of put it together. I mean, you I kind of saw that list on Twitter of the college quarterbacks of Nick Saban's Alabama, and it's like Tim Tebow, Joe Burrow, Cam Newton, and now Zach Calzada. Just kind of one of the things yeah. that's not like the other. But uh, just tell me about more about his rise and why he's kind of finally figured it out in the NM offense. Sure. He, um, he, according to, to Fisher, all through fall camp, the, 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 the battle between him and Haynes King, who did start the season – off at the beginning at quarterback was, was tight. Um, Haynes King uh, was a little bit more of the mobile, athletic, uh, playmaking kind of quarterback, and that Calzada had the cannon arm. Um, Haynes King did go down in the Colorado game with a broken tibia, uh, and Calzada came in, was, was rusty that game, but was able to lead the game-winning uh, drive at, at the end of the game that let them win 10-7. to But after that, it, it was real shaky. He was... He was uh, Seemed nervous, and I think a lot of the struggles through um, some of the New Mexico game, even though they won that, and then the uh, Arkansas game and the Mississippi State game, where he, he was kind of nervous, wasn't setting his feet, not good mechanics, uh, seemed like the game was moving a little fast, and, and he was um, having trouble coping with that. But something happened in this last week where he, he looked 
completely different. He was confident. His feet were set. He was making good passes. I mean, he started 10 for 10 uh, in the game with, with, with uh, passes, and, and actually his only blemish through most of the first half, I believe all of the first half, was an interception. Um, it was his only incomplete pass. So um, it, it was a really, really drastic turnaround for him from a guy who left the Mississippi State game after taking a safety at the end of the game that basically sealed the deal with, with tears in his eyes walking off the field to basically almost getting carried off the field with a, a, cadet, a cadet hat on his head. And, and it's just kind of great uh, image of, of, of kind of the hero of the night. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to say what necessarily happened in that week between the Mississippi State game and the uh, Alabama game, other than the fact that he just kind of gained his confidence back, was able to lean back and rely on his mechanics. And I think that that's a better picture of the quarterback that Jimbo Fisher and his staff recruited. How much of a surprise was it to see kind of that shift so quickly? Was it more so they're playing Alabama, do you think? Or was it just it just all quick no matter who they were facing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that everybody plays up for Alabama. There's a team that has their target on their back, and everybody wants to be the team that, that kind of dethrones the dynasty. So that sure, surely probably played a part in it. I know you you can't also talk about maybe some of the struggles that Zach Talzada had through the, the two-and-a-half weeks prior without talking about the offensive line and how it's also been a little bit unsteady. There's been people moving around, people injured. Uh, and the whatnot, and just hadn't found necessarily a cohesive five that they liked. Um, you know, last year A&M's offensive line was probably the strongest unit of the group. They finished as uh, finalists for the Joe, Joe Moore Award and, and lost only to Alabama last year, and they, then they lost four of those starters on that team to the NFL. And so uh, they, I, I think, a little bit of maybe a lot of a little bit of the overall success has to fall onto finding an offensive line that, that meshes, and it really starts with their All-American team Green moving out to left tackle, which is a spot that people thought he might play this year, beginning with the of the year, but um, because of injuries and some other guys had, had actually moved around. And so him at left tackle, Blake Trainer and, and um, uh, Bryce Foster, two freshmen right there in the, the middle, and um, I think that they've actually kind of found found a little bit of a combination that works, and that, that played a lot into it as well. Missouri is, hasn't had a game this year yet. We're in game number seven is the A&M game, or Missouri's seventh game of the year, and they haven't put together a 60-minute performance yet. And that's disturbing considering some of those games are against SEMO and North Texas and just, it's just Central Michigan, and just, you know, they haven't from start to finish, really had a great game yet. Is A&M kind of licking their chops here a little bit? I, I see the Vegas line is right around a touchdown and a field goal, maybe even nine points. Is there some thought that, okay, Missouri's prone here for A&M to, you know, just have a, a blowout win on the road, or do you think maybe their heads could be a little too high coming off beating the number one team in the country where they could be susceptible for an upset for Missouri? You know, I, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle with that because I don't necessarily – even though A&M did just knock off Alabama and, and kind of do the impossible on Saturday, I mean, there, there's still the stark reality of the two-and-a-half games, really three three to four-and-a-half – or three-and-a-half games before that where A&M just really wasn't great. I mean, they, they did take care of business New Mexico, against New Mexico, but it wasn't just a, a stellar performance. 
beating the Lobos then, and a team that they really should have beaten, beaten by a lot more. And then you have the two losses and, and a game against Colorado that, that they struggled. They went through to, to get that win. And so I, I don't necessarily think that they are, you know, riding so high on, on cloud nine that um, they think that this game is just going to be beatable by showing up. But I also don't think that it's necessarily going to feel like a trap game, even though that's what Jimbo Fisher said this week. I, I think that they're, they still actually kind of have some stuff to prove. That Calzada, the offense, needs to prove that last week wasn't just a fluke, that they really do, uh, really can move the ball with some consistency and, and put some points on the board. I think it'll be a really big game for A&M's running game because – Coming into the season, their offense was really going to revolve around Isaiah Spiller and Devon Chain, their two uh, running backs. And because of the offensive line struggles, those two necessarily haven't been able to have quite the season that they wanted to, minus some big explosive plays that they've had throughout the season. And I know Missouri's uh, run defense is, is not so great this year. And so that might be an aspect of the team that might be kind of lick, licking their chops for this game. But you know, defensively, if you look at the Mississippi State game, the A&M defense was supposed to be one of the best in the SEC, if not the best. Uh, Georgia could have had some arguments about, arguments about that preseason, but they've been very flawed through the season, and especially pointing back to the Mississippi State game, where they dropped into such coverage that they allowed uh, Mike Leach and Mississippi State just to kind of pass all over them in that game, and that ultimately kind of spelled the, the difference in, in what was the win and loss there. So, I, you know, I, I think that there is there might be some anticipation in the idea that they can kind of continue to solidify um, some of the success that they've had, but uh, I don't know if anybody necessarily knows that this A&M team is the team that beat uh, Alabama week in and week out. They they kind of still have to prove that. You said Missouri's run defense is, uh, you know, hasn't been that good. That's, that's being very kind, actually. Missouri's defense is incredibly shaky. Uh, talk to me more about A&M on defense. I know that it kind of seems like it's strength on strength, you know, or more so Missouri's only way to kind of win this game would be using their strength of Connor Bayside quarterback, maybe Tyler Beatty at running back with an, with an improved offensive line. But what is it, what is, you know, kind of A&M's mojo on defense? I mean, on defense there, uh, what, what won the game against Alabama is turnovers and getting pressure in on um, Bryce Young. They they recorded, I believe, three sacks on Young uh, in the game. And then, of course, had an interception and a fumble recovery that helped lead to some points. And um, that that was huge. The, the turnover aspect of that was, hasn't necessarily been an identity of A&M this season or even at kind of towards the end of last season. They, they haven't necessarily – been a team that's enforced a whole lot of turnovers, um, but that is something that certainly helped last week. They're, they're a defense that is, has been stingy, especially in the run game, um, and that last year they were stingy in the run game. They had some issues with that beginning of the season, but have kind of been able to lock down a little bit more. Um, I think the one issue to look at on the defense has actually been injuries, uh, you based, oh, everyone thought that Miles Jones returning for his fifth season at cornerback was going to be a huge deal because you had Jalen Jones and Milan Jones, two, um, uh, uh, two lockdown cornerbacks, uh, that were going to help solidify that, that defense. Uh, Miles Jones is, uh, done for the year and actually is back 
backup Brian George uh, is done for the year with an injury, and so they're down to Tyreek Chappelle, who's a true freshman over there at, uh, I believe it's the boundary corner position, and Mike Elko's 4-2-5, and um, I, I think that he's done well, and he was certainly not necessarily a liability against Alabama last week, but that's a position definitely to look for. Um, and, and then linebackers, uh, they returned Aaron Hansford from last year as a fifth-year guy, a uh, guy that had a senior bowl invite, but they've kind of had to rotate through some linebackers to be able to really feel, get a feel for, for what that is going to look like and, and, and who's going to separate themselves uh, in, in that position. So it's a defense that when it's at playing at its best, it certainly can be among some of the best in, in the country, but when it's not necessarily in the right, the best position or has the best game plan or just some of the guys don't come to play like they should, that they haven't necessarily lived up to expectations at times, especially in, in terms of open field tackling. But that being said, I, I think what they demonstrated against Alabama was kind of what everyone ex, uh, expected, and that was a pretty good lockdown defense. And you'd have to think that odds would be in favor of that returning again this week against the Missouri. It's weird to look at A&M and Missouri's journeys. I mean, they, they were in the Big 12 together, and then they played the first three years when they jumped together to the SEC in the Johnny Manziel year of 2012 and Missouri's back-to-back SEC East title years of 13 and 14 together, and then they haven't played in those seven years since. Uh, so uh, do you think even A&M-Missouri could be kind of even a rivalry game, or what do you kind of see as the kind of, you know, if, if any kind of rivalry between two schools who have been, been the longest standing members of the same conference together. Sure. I, I think that there is some familiarity there, and uh, I think it will be. You know, I think it might actually, and you could correct me on this, there might actually be a little bit more in it for Missouri fans in that regard, considering that Missouri fans don't even really get to play some of the historical um, rivals that they have from old conferences that are in the SEC now, having to be in the East and, and go go to your Florida's and your Vanderbilt and whatnot, and those really don't have much history with Missouri, whereas A&M does. I think that A&M has been able to kind of scratch that itch, um, especially with Arkansas. I think that there was the, the history there and, and the proximity there that there's a lot of uh, that's kind of burgeoned into another little rivalry game they've had. And, of course, with close, close proximity and, and some history and some recent history with LSU, that those have kind of become the two games that I think A&M fans uh, re- really put their uh, circle on the calendar every year. I think this would very well fall into that category just like Arkansas did if the teams played each other more, but because of the, the really dumb, crazy way that the SEC schedules, it, it's you know, not necessarily a game there or a team that, that comes to mind with A&M as much in terms of football. And uh, it's probably a little bit of a shame because of the history of the teams that programs have. I, I agree with you completely. I mean, Missouri losing Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas, I'm sure Texas, Texas A&M is huge, but those are huge rivalry games every year. Colorado was a big one, too. And so, you know, Iowa State was big. So, you know, just you, I mean, you look at you, all you, those you, things. You, you might speak to this in a little bit as well, but I think, you know, maybe up until this last year when they announced scores or post scores on the scoreboard during timeouts at, at, at A&M football games, you, you, sometimes, you know, if Alabama was losing to someone or something like that, or maybe LSU was losing, they'd get a big cheer. But it was when they started walking through the, the tech games, of course, the, the tech games, 
some of those local old Big 12 rivals, if some of those teams were losing or winning, those would get the cheers and the boos, maybe necessarily more than some of the SEC teams. And so I think that while A&M certainly enjoys being in the SEC and wouldn't want to be anywhere else because of the way the college football landscape is shaped right now, I think when you get to the water cooler, probably more people are still talking about the the old Big 12 Southwest Conference rivals that seem to kind of be uh, that A&M and a lot of these schools are still somewhat attached to the hit to whether they're in the same conference or not. Especially in football, Missouri losing Kansas is big because they used to beat up on them all the time. And it's kind of the same reason Kansas misses Missouri uh, in men's basketball. Kind of, kind of a, a, you know, that both sides of the border war there, very much similar to A&M, Texas. But kind of getting back to the Missouri A&M matchup, just how do you see this one ending up this week? I mean, do you think that it's going to be closed? Do you think Vegas has it right, or is this a Texas A&M blowout kind of in the making? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if, if the same A&M team shows up that they did against Alabama, yeah, I think Vegas will have it exactly right. I think it will be a blowout. I, I, I do think A&M will have a chance, hopefully, uh, for Aggie fans to, to lean, to, to get to see the kind of playmaking that um, Isaiah Spiller and Devon A-Chain can do on the ground. I, I, you would think that uh, Jimbo Fisher would lean heavily on those two and then run the play-action pass game to, to, to keep the – the defense um, uh, honest in, in that regard, but with how bad um, Missouri's run defense has been, this is definitely a game for those two running backs to shine and get a little some reps and get some uh, get some uh, some confidence back in the uh, offensive line in in run blocking. Uh, so I, I would I would definitely see them leaning pretty heavily on that run game and if they can establish that and really get. It. Going, yeah, I think A and M should roll in this one. Sounds good. Well, why can't everybody read your stuff from the opponent's perspective and catch up with the online? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, you can you can catch my stuff on on Twitter at Travis underscore L underscore Brown, and then it's all of course on people dot com, um, or we have a A and M kind of dedicated page called MyAggieNation dot com that all the stuff is is on as well. So we'll have all the previews from our team leading up to that game this weekend. All right, that was Travis Brown from the Eagle. Thank you so much, Travis. Uh, I guess I'll be seeing you on Saturday. You got it, definitely. We would like to thank our sponsors for the Columbia Daily Tribune's Mizzou Sports Podcast, University of Missouri Healthcare. University of Missouri Healthcare is proud to be the official sponsor of MU Athletics. Blue Events. Let Blue create the perfect event. Their passion for food, service, and presentation ensures that you will have a seamless and memorable event no matter the size. They will work with you to bring your vision to life. Phyllis Nichols State Farm Insurance. There when things go wrong, here to help life go right. The Mizzou Sports Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today. Follow Mizzou Football with the Tribune's Tiger Extra newsletter. Sign up at ColumbiaTribune.com slash Tiger Extra for stories, galleries, and podcasts in your inbox every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, John, question. 
With Auburn firing Gus Malzahn, it leaves Ed Ogeron as the SEC's only coach who has beaten Nick Saban. Who's going to be the next SEC coach to beat Saban? Well, I don't think he'll be the guy that a lot of people think he will be. Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M. I like Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. He almost beat Saban last year, and he almost beat Saban when he was at Tennessee. Fisher promised he was going to thump Saban's rump whenever Alabama comes to College Station. I think he's got a shot. He improved Texas A&M to 9-1 and last year. He's got a national championship to his name. If Haynes King is the real deal, he's got an early opportunity in October to beat Nick Saban. Look at Saban's track record for losses. It's usually to a great quarterback. Cam Newton, Johnny Manziel, or Joe Burrow. Matt Corral at Ole Miss, I think, could be the best quarterback in the league. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams, let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Nealon, but I did interview Bear Bryant and I interviewed Nick Saban, and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Gotta go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you once again to Travis for joining us on this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast. Definitely great to reconnect with him. Right before we uh, got into the interview with Travis, we were talking about kind of the college football playoff and talking about, yeah, obviously not how Missouri falls into it, but A&M falls into it. So, and what I was going to get at is, if you if you are the selection committee right now, Chris, who are the four teams you want to see in the playoff? Oh my gosh. That's a good question. Um, okay, so Georgia, Georgia and three others. Won. Yeah. Um, so Georgia... It's the season and today. It's weird because it's Georgia, Iowa, Cincinnati. Cincinnati and Georgia are the two that I'm picking right now. Okay. Um, eventually, Iowa's going to lose to whomever comes out of the other side of the Big Ten. So, Ohio State or Michigan. Okay. So, either Michigan or Ohio State. Okay. And then, um, who's the fourth spot? That's the, that's the best question. Eventually, it's going to come back to Alabama. If, but Alabama's going to have to beat Georgia in the SEC title game. You think that happens? It's not, unpo- it's not it's, impossible. It's, it's not absolutely not impossible. Yeah. But Alabama gets shut out if they lose that game, guaranteed now. So you think the likely scenario ends up being the winner of the Big Ten, the winner of the SEC, Georgia and Cincinnati is what is what you're going to pick happens. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Here, I don't like my choices, but here ends up being my choices. Georgia, I still think Iowa gets in because if they face Michigan, Michigan's a bad matchup. Uh, for them, but I still think they get past it. I think if Ohio State wins that game, I still think Ohio State gets lifted. If someone from the Big Ten is going to make it in, I do believe it's Iowa. And when you have five teams in the top eight, unless they topple, I think that Iowa does get in. I do think Cincinnati gets in as well. My fourth pick, I don't like it, but I'm going Oklahoma. Because as an undefeated Power 5 champion, you cannot deny them regardless of how horrible their schedule is or how shaky they've looked, who in the Big 12 is going to beat them? And if that doesn't happen, how do you deny them? And to take that a step further, if you're going to let an undefeated Cincinnati team in, you have to let an undefeated Oklahoma team in. Oh, guaranteed. And that and that kind of biasly 
makes my national championship prediction of a Georgia-Oklahoma game still alive. But in that scenario, it would be Oklahoma 4, Georgia 1, so I'd only get one of those two teams in. Because we all expected Spencer Rattler to be incredible instead of maybe transferring to an Arizona school. Who knows? But it's all baseless speculation. I did want to bring that up. So you saw the report that came out from the Oklahoma Daily, and you saw everything that kind of went on with that. So why don't you explain what that was, Chris, and then get into why it's so ridiculous? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny because it's this is the day and age of how can you limit the most access without taking away the essentials, and uh, and you've seen you saw it firsthand with Oklahoma, where you had a student a student reporter from the Oklahoma OU Daily, I believe. The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And went to a parking garage and took a pair of binoculars. Very yeah, might have been a building. It was a public building. It was a public building. I heard it was a parking garage. It could be wrong. Well, it still is a public building. But okay. But either way, public building took a pair of binoculars, like old school binoculars, and went and re- watched practice, watched who was taking first team reps, and then uh, deduce it was Caleb Williams. Yeah. Over Spencer Rattler, and immediately that started. That story came out, and props to the student journalist who also then went and got quotes from Spencer Rattler's dad saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, your your son's not with the first team. What do you think?" And he's like, "Well, he's still committed to Oklahoma." And that like good on him for getting that for getting both sides of that story. And then immediately Oklahoma said, "Yeah, there's no media today. We're not gonna we're not gonna talk." They canceled it the rest of the week, and that goes back from even on Saturday when Hollywood wanted to interview Caleb Williams, and Lincoln Riley was like, "No." Like it's just it's weird. Like and something that I've thought about for a long time is, and this is what irked me. And I said I talked about this I guess like two weeks ago, maybe in last week's episode when Missouri kind of changed their media schedule because of the loss to Tennessee, was if you try and be, for lack of a better word, shady, and deny media access that's only going to make them come back twice as hard either you and and i understand that sometimes there are bad eggs in every bunch and i get that and this might be a little preachy but for those of us who are only concerned with telling your team stories as long as you give us the bare minimum that we think is correct we're not gonna do those things you know oklahoma media has had kind of that kind of back and forth with their Lincoln Riley and the SIDs for a long time. Like I remember, there was the image that came out last year where all of the dorms that had a window facing uh, Oklahoma's practice field got like tinted, and so you couldn't see, you couldn't see it. Like it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my entire life. That you were like, it's like you live in a jail almost. And not not that maybe not that bad. No, but but, but still, it's, it's like you can't see out your window as a freshman. Like it's very much a privilege, but like. It's just the the length these schools will go to, and not that Missouri's done anything like that. I think you have to be competing in the college football playoffs to kind of have that kind of that paranoia. Missouri's not there at the moment, and that's not an insult considering you're coming to, less than two weeks ago off that loss of, loss to Tennessee. But just just to see that level of just limited access and locking the media away for a journalist, let's call a spade a spade, a student journalist doing their job correctly, is just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's something that you kind of look like. It's not normal. I guess that's the key. That's the big thing. Is it's not really normal because you don't see Alabama doing that. And even after after a loss like last week, I mean, they could have just shut down. I mean, we it wasn't the same. But kind of last week after the 
Tennessee loss where Steve Wilkes wasn't talking. They didn't have a defensive player speak to us uh, at all during the week. And you kind of like to ask, you know, what, what happened? What did happen? What, what's going on? Those are the questions you'd like to ask someone like that. But then you take it away and you're just kind of like, well, it's not just us that doesn't have the answers to that. It's everybody else that's wondering what happened. And same with this Caleb Williams situation. And maybe there's a little bit more to it. Maybe there's something that maybe Caleb just doesn't doesn't feel right talking to the media. Maybe there's something because I can totally understand a little bit of that. But I mean, if you're but you're a starting college quarterback for Oklahoma. That's what you sign up for. Yeah, but but still, like, there's there's still a lot of anxieties that can play into it. So I'm willing to give Caleb the benefit of the doubt. Oh, oh yeah, no, but but when it's all on Lincoln Riley. But when, Lincoln Riley. Uh, yeah, but uh, but then the rest of Oklahoma, it's like you could have an answer for that, but you don't have a, a good one. Yeah, and obviously, I just said the thing. It, it wasn't as bad as jail, obviously, but like you have to also look and see how that kind of just mindset can just take away from not only the student athletes at your school, but just the message of your school in general. And that's kind of the locked away message I was trying to get at is when you look and see everything that went wrong with the situation, you know, at the end of the day, this would have been over by Saturday. Like, it is making a small problem so much bigger just because you're trying to control the message. And I I will never understand when programs do that. Compared to what's happened in Oklahoma and other programs, you're like, you mentioned Alabama, but Alabama already has their coaches locked down. Like, they get defensive coordinator maybe once or twice a year, very select players, it's just basically every player feature that's written on them is quotes from whenever, and then they go and talk to other people. That doesn't happen in Missouri, and I'm very thankful for the opportunities we do have here, especially because a lot of schools still do it over Zoom. I don't think Auburn's had an in-person press conference this year uh, since SEC Media Days. They did it there, but that that might be the last time they actually did it. But we've had Eli Drinkwitz, every, everything that's been held in Columbia has been in person, and I'm very thankful for that. It's just... I just don't like seeing when other schools take advantage of the leverage that they could have. And that just completely threw me off as opposed to like, just like, why are they doing that? And I know this is a Mizzou sports podcast, so we probably should get back to Mizzou, Mizzou talk. But anything else you want to wrap up kind of this, this talk with, Chris? No, it's just an interesting situation. It's kind of like you, I like what you said before. It's one of those things where you kind of have to see how it plays out. And what happens to Spencer? Does, does Spencer, does he get his job back? Does Caleb take it all the way? And it was a crazy game, though. It was a crazy game, and I think that, I mean, Caleb Williams was a highly touted kid. He was going to have his chance anyway. Yeah. But uh, so getting back to the Mizzou Texas A and M, it, it's my personal belief that I think the Vegas line right now is about ten, if not nine and a half. That I, I don't see that happening no matter what. I think this is going to be a blowout A and M win, a close A and M win, like well within that line, like field goal or a close Mizzou win. I think that's one of the three scenarios. Mizzou blowing AM and I'm out. I'm sorry, not going to happen. Uh, how do you want, how do you see this playing out? I I can see it being close. Um, I'm I don't know which way I lean, honestly. Uh, it really cuz it really depends on it really depends on a couple things and and you go back and you look at the the two games that they lost against uh, Arkansas um, and to Mississippi State and the big thing was when you look at their starting quarterback Zach, and he threw an interception against Mississippi State, and then he comes back and throws another interception against Arkansas. So they're forcing that quarterback to make mistakes. And granted, those were his first couple starts because of uh, Haynes King going down. Yeah, yeah, Haynes King being, being injured, and so he's coming in, and he's starting, and maybe it just took a couple games for him to get used to it and get get just can't get get aligned in the system. But when you think about Zach now against Alabama, yeah, through an interception, but also through multiple touchdowns. I mean, they're also through over 300 yards. I mean, guy looked really good, led him all the way. But the big thing for me is, it isn't 
Zach, it's Connor Bazelak. Because you look at Mississippi State and you look at Arkansas, they didn't throw interceptions. They didn't make mistakes in that game. Bryce Young made a mistake in the Alabama, the Texas A&M game. He threw an interception in the red zone, I believe. So when it comes to, to Bazelak, he's got to be on point. He's got to – you can't make a mistake. You can't throw an interception. You can't fumble the ball. And he also plays in, okay, the offensive line has to give him protection. But when you think back into the Tennessee game and even the Boston College game when you started to force throws a little bit, that's when you start to think of, okay, if Connor can settle in, if Connor can you know, read the defense, if he can discern between zone and the man, which he's done very well before. He did that really well against Boston College. He did. If he can do that, I think it's a close game. And perhaps even Mizzou's coming out on top. Yeah, I, I presented those three options. The more and more you talked, the more and more I'm thinking this is an A&M blowout win. And I absolutely agree with your points. I just, I, I just, it's walking that tightrope for Missouri. I, I haven't seen enough from their defense to think that they can stop A&M because they have, I think, one of the better players in the conference in Isaiah Spiller. I think that Zach Calzada absolutely played well last week, and it's more likely that he stays at that level against a Missouri than crumbles again, not not against Alabama, but crumbles against the Missouri's defense we've seen. And Missouri turning this into a shootout, I think AM just got the better legs on them. AM is coming in with a little bit, maybe even a little bit more motivation. I hate to say it. I mean, Missouri is expected to lose this game. Missouri, I, I don't think it's just going to fold over, but if this one gets away from them late, I wouldn't be shocked. I think I did choose AM to cover. I believe you did as well. Um, I think that's the smart pick, especially with how low that is right now. I mean, I expected at least a two-touchdown spread, if not a little higher, after being the number one team in the country in Missouri, losing to a team, or sorry, only beating a team at home by 13 that has not beaten an FBS team yet this year. So it's going to be interesting. If Missouri wins this game, the season would be, I think, more than back on track. Two weeks after losing Tennessee game, which would be a huge, huge kind of sigh relief and burden off the shoulders of that coaching staff in Columbia. But if it doesn't, we got two weeks to kind of break it down. And yeah, anything else you want to talk about before we get off this week, Chris? Yeah, because it's coming on less than a week from the most important commitment of the entire year for Mizzou in Luther Burden. I'm trying to think if it's longer than that. I'm trying to think the last time, especially a public kind of decision like this, it was before COVID because obviously you couldn't attend those things before COVID. So I'm trying to think the last time there was the choosing of the hats and Missouri needed a kid that bad type of deal. Actually, it was right before COVID. It was Ennis Rakestraw. So when he chose uh, Missouri over Texas and Alabama, it has to be him. When when one of the first kind of viral moments of Drinkwitz kind of happened with them running around the Missouri, you know, uh, South End Zone complex after getting him. And so, I think Burden's bigger than that, but that's the last time we even had a moment like that for Missouri. So, it's it's nice to have that moment again. So, from everything I'm hearing, it's it's a coin flip, Mizzou, Georgia, even though Alabama's involved there. He visited Missouri for the North Texas game, is headed down to Georgia for Georgia, Kentucky. I mean, really, it is, I mean, Missouri is very much in the thick of things and probably will be until we know whether he is coming to Columbia or not. And there's always the possibility, and, and I hate to bring this up. But it's true with every commitment. This is a still a verbal commitment. And with how much they've been hyping hyping it up, I imagine Luther Burden will stay true to whatever team he chooses next Tuesday. But there is always the possibility that, I mean, he was committed to Oklahoma for nine months, ten months, and then decommitted from them. Now it is a matter of choosing pro- likely either Missouri or Georgia. Can, if Eli Drinkwitz gets this, it'll be the second highest player in program history in terms of rating wise that he ever snags. First one being Daryl Green Beckham, which didn't really work out for the program. So th- th- this would be an interesting, interesting kind of dichotomy of how quickly does his Mizzou legend grow 
if he comes to Missouri. And then you look at he goes to Georgia, they're a little bit more used to getting those blue-chip prospects from all over the country. And I'm not sure. I mean, he'll be a big fish in a huge pond, but he comes to Missouri. And maybe that game-changer Eli Drinkwitz kind of needs to revitalize the program. Could you imagine, we're talking here in a week, a win over A&M, and they get Luther Burden, how much differently we're thinking of the program compared to blowout loss, and he goes to Georgia. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a it could be a very game changing what what five days for for Missouri seventy two hours about a little more than seventy two hours I guess because we're here right now would be a nighttime commitment for Luther Burden around six p.m. in St. Louis and that's and it's an eleven a.m. game so about eighty hours ish yeah. for Missouri there it could be a very big turning point in the Drinkwitz era one way or another because Missouri does have a bye week then Vanderbilt so this is kind of a high time for Missouri a very exciting time and we'll bring all the coverage at ColumbiaTribune.com slash sports but. But yeah, yes, Chris. Well, we I wanted to ask uh, if if Drink was excited to see Ennis Rakestra and ran around the, the athletic complex. What's he going to do if he gets with the bird? Is he do backflips? I'm he not sure he's allowed in the building, and we might not even know because that was on National Signing Day. So we we had a camera there ready to go, right? From from, from the Missouri Athletics uh, staff. But I mean, I don't know if Drink can do a backflip. But if I landed him, I would. I mean, he's got a very nice pool at his house. I jump in with all my clothes on. I mean. I, I guess I, I I don't know what what would be the equivalent. I mean, it, it, if Drink lands him, everything that's thought about his re- reputation, his staff's reputation as a recruiter, we might have been underselling. And it was a strong message that they'd come out with very early on. Yeah. So that's just kind of not that the opinion of one kid can determine it one way or another, but some kids matter more than others. Sorry to say it, it's true. And Luther Burden's opinion might matter the most of any person Drinkwitz has gone after since he got the Missouri job. And not that the opinions of a other highly tired prospects like a Dominic Lovett or a Travion Ford, you know, or an Ennis Rakestraw or other guys like that don't matter because they do. And it's a great sign for the health of the recruiting, you know, kind of pipeline. But if Missouri is going to close those gaps eventually, these are the type of kids that have to stay here. This is the type of kid that Gary Pinkle did get. Let let you not forget Jeremy Macklin. Went to Kirkwood, not too far from East St. Louis. Was a longtime Oklahoma commit under Bob Stoops. Gary Pinkle flipped him. Not too dissimilar here. And Jerry Macklin, I think, he turned out all right, and I think Luther Burden would be okay with that career path. Yeah, I think he'd be okay with I, it. I wouldn't disagree. No, yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we 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 kind of have some plans kind of together, maybe even doing a podcast, maybe with the audio from the Luther Burden press conference, which we bring to you on Tuesday. We kind of are still ironing out those details, but we should be joining you very soon. It might not even be a week because we were going to take the bye week off. Maybe we do kind of a more recruiting style podcast next week. But uh, until then, for Chris Kwasinski, I've been Eric Blum. Thank you for listening to this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.